Well, good evening and welcome to Plum Creek Chapel's midweek Bible study. As you can probably tell by the uh, scenery behind me here, I am not at the church like we normally would be. Once again, for the third time this winter, we've had to cancel our in-person uh, midweek Bible study uh, because of a snowstorm. And so, uh, but uh, we, uh, we certainly love getting together and at least uh, interacting over the Word each week, so we hate to cancel the service altogether. So I'm going to be live streaming tonight uh, from my home. And I was reading a verse in Proverbs 16 before we uh, started the live stream uh, tonight. And I was just reminded of how encouraging it is to engage with the Word of God and, and, and at least stop in the middle of the week and uh, come together and, and have an intentional focus on God's Word. Proverbs 16, uh, verse 20 says, He who heeds the Word wisely will find good, and whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. And uh, so that's what uh, diving into the Word of God helps us do. It helps us know the Word of God better, and the more we know the Word of God, the more we'll trust Him. And we certainly need to have faith in times like these when there's so much unrest and uh, just things happening in the world at large and uh, certainly in our own, uh, in our own uh, context and lives. So I hope you'll... Uh, appreciate this time together tonight, even though we can't be together in person. It's always a little difficult uh, for me as a teacher <laughs> to do uh, purely recorded uh, videos. All of the stuff that you hear on our uh, podcast at Not By Works and the videos that we do are either from uh, Plum Creek Chapel, uh, my home church there in Sedalia, or at conferences where I'm speaking or radio interviews where I'm interacting with a host. And uh, when it's just me and a camera in a big empty uh, room, it's, it's kind of uh, a little bit of a, a strange uh, feeling and experience. But uh, I love to teach the Word of God, and hopefully uh, this will be a benefit uh, for you. Uh, so before we get started tonight, let me, uh, as is our custom, uh, mention a couple of quick uh, uh, announcements and just uh, things that uh, we want you to be aware of. First of all, uh, this past Tuesday, yesterday I guess that was, wow, it's been a long day, uh, was our regular Tuesday uh, podcast on the Christian Underground News Network. And wow, what a what a explosive topic we had yesterday with uh, Curtis Chamberlain. It was why you don't want to be left behind at the rapture. And uh, so I hope you'll uh, check that out uh, from yesterday. I realize there's a typo on the screen there. Sorry about that. But why you don't want to be left behind at the rapture. And so that's still available. You can get to it right from our homepage or wherever you uh, listen to a podcast. Also had a great discussion this past Sunday in our nine o'clock hour at Plum Creek Chapel on uh, the second coming and God's uh, covenant promise through his pro uh, covenant program with Abraham. And so uh, that was a really a good discussion and a good uh, time together. So I encourage you to watch that video. Uh, or of course, you can listen to uh, the podcast. Now tonight, we're in part 14 of how to read and understand the Bible. And I'm, again, I, I'm trying to hide my disappointment that we're not able to meet together in person because as I uh, teased a little bit last week at the end of our Bible study, I was really looking forward to our discussion of how to uh, handle uh, the prophetic portions of Scripture. And uh, what we've been talking about, of course, is that different portions of Scripture, different types of literature in the Bible uh, have uh, unique features that uh, require special attention and observation and those types of things. And so last week, uh, we, we finished up our look at figures of speech and uh, we did a little exercise, you know, there in uh, class. And then we left off 
by introducing the, the subject of prophecy. Uh, we've been kind of using the 24 rules of biblical interpretation as a template, and uh, number 16 of those, which is where we left off, talks about uh, how to interpret prophetic literature. And uh, so I gave you uh, several general rules, kind of as a segue from that uh, number 16 there, uh, on some principles for prophetic interpretation. And we went through each of those. I won't take the time to read through them again, uh, but I encourage you to go back. If you weren't here last week or weren't able to watch the video, uh, be sure you watch that because these are some pretty key principles that often, especially a few of them that are violated when people come to prophetic literature. As I talked about last week, for some reason, when people... Um, you know, look at uh, biblical prophecy, end times prophecy, they lose all bearings and they, they end up, uh, you know, just doing, uh, going nilly-willy with the Word of God and not following the normal, literal, plain meaning of Scripture, the literal, grammatical, historical meaning of Scripture. So I'm going to try to boil that down uh, for you today, tonight, with some, uh, just a template that I've used for years, that I've taught for years, uh, that I think kind of simplifies it for you. When you when you come to a to an unfulfilled prophecy or really any prophecy in Scripture, uh, really there are only three options as to how that prophecy will be fulfilled. Now you read the literature out there, you you get a hold of some some bad Bible teaching, and you'll find uh, that people are all over the map uh, as it relates to how to interpret Bible prophecy. More often than not, you'll get into uh, sort of allegor allegorizing the passage or spiritualizing uh, the passage and uh, just uh, kind of making it mean something uh, symbolic or encoded language that's way uh, far from what the words on the page actually mean. And so it's really important that we kind of stick to these three options. And uh, so I'm going to walk through these. We're going to look at some biblical examples, and, and that's what I hope to uh, to accomplish tonight. I don't know that it'll take the, the whole hour, but uh, if we had an audience here with some questions and answers, I'm sure that it would. But I really want you to kind of pay attention and, and, and take some notes maybe and mark down these three kinds of prophetic fulfillment. Again, I can't emphasize enough, when you deal with a, prof with a prophecy in Scripture, whether that's one that's already been fulfilled in history, such as prophecies about the first advent of Christ, or whether it's one that awaits future fulfillment, doesn't matter. All prophecies really have to meet one of these three categories for fulfillment. Uh, the first is kind of obvious, and I call it complete fulfillment. And as the name indicates, this is when a prophecy uh, is fulfilled in one event, that you've got a prophecy, you've got a fulfillment, it's done. Uh, no confusion there, not a lot of variations or problems. The Bible predicts something, and it happens. It's called complete fulfillment. So I've listed there on the screen, and for those of you that might be uh, listening to this uh, via podcast later on, uh, I want to make sure and read uh, that. But uh, passages like Isaiah 7.14, uh, you know, the, the virgin birth. Isaiah said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, that's a pretty straightforward prophecy, even though liberal scholars and liberal Bible critics have twisted it and tried to make it much more complex uh, than it really is. 
Basically, when Isaiah predicted that a virgin would conceive and bear a son, guess what? It meant that a virgin would conceive and bear a son, and that, of course, is referring to Jesus Christ. That's why in the New King James Version and many other modern versions, you see the word son in Isaiah 7.14 capitalized because it's a reference to the Son of God, uh, Jesus Christ, who was born uh, of a virgin, lived a perfect, holy, sinless life when he put on human flesh, uh, was uh, crucified on the cross for our sins, rose again the third day, defeating death, hell, and the grave, purchasing our redemption with his own blood, a purchasing life that he can then turn around and offer freely to all who will accept it by faith. And then he ascended back to heaven to sit at the right hand of the throne of God where he awaits uh, that future moment when he will come first for the church in the air and ultimately all the way back to earth at the end of the tribulation to establish his kingdom. So this is a clear messianic a prophecy. And of course, it was fulfilled in the New Testament. And Matthew even quotes Isaiah 7.14, telling us that that is the fulfillment uh, of that prophecy. So a complete fulfillment is when all of the prophecy is fulfilled in one event. Uh, Isaiah 7.14 is a perfect example of that. Now, another one would be, for example, Micah 5.2, when Micah the prophet says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, now Ephrathah was an old name for that area that later was where Ju Bethlehem and Judah was from. And uh, Micah the prophet, you know, 500 years or so before Christ is, is you know, distinguishing that Bethlehem from other Bethlehems uh, throughout the promised land that we read about in Old Testament book of, say, Genesis and, and, and even Joshua. But uh, this is Bethlehem Ephrathah which in fact, as we know from the New Testament, is precisely where Jesus was born. But notice what Micah says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, uh, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, it was not a particularly significant city, certainly is now, obviously, um, because of its legacy of having been the birthplace of Messiah. But he says, Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Now, this verse has a lot of theology packed into it, uh, and I'm using it simply to illustrate a direct fulfillment of prophecy, a complete fulfillment. Prophecy, something predicted, fulfillment all in one event, it's done. Uh, but while we're looking at it, uh, look at that last part of the verse there, whose goings forth are from old, uh, from everlasting. This, of course, speaks to the eternal uh, sonship of Christ, the eternality of Christ, that God, uh, the Son, is eternal. God eternally exists in three persons, and yet He was born in time, space, and matter. That's a paradox, isn't it? How can something without beginning and without end, eternal, uh, be, have a beginning in time? <laughs> and yet that's exactly what we see with the hypostatic union, the eternal Christ and the human Christ 100% human, 100% Christ, all one person, the second person of the Trinity. But so here's another example of the Old Testament prophets predicting hundreds of years before it happened that the Messiah, the, the, the Christ child that Isaiah talked about 300 years before Micah, uh, would in fact be born, his birthplace would be in Bethlehem. And then, of course, Luke, uh, the great historian of the New Testament, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, tells us the beautiful story of the birth of the Christ child, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in Luke chapter 2. And 
and by a series of providential events, all part of God's plan of the ages and all in fulfillment of Micah's prophecy, Joseph and Mary find themselves in Bethlehem, and guess what? Uh, baby Jesus arrives. And so this is another example of complete fulfillment. And frankly, we, when we think of prophecy, this is the way we have come uh, to think of it. You know, we think of a, a prophet who makes predictions, right? And they predict something, and then you wait to see if it's going to happen. You have so-called, you know, modern-day so-called prophets who are out there making predictions all the time. And, of course, sometimes they might be right. They got lucky, as Calvin would say, uh, or, uh, or they missed it, you know. Um, uh, of course, the biblical prophet, according to the Old Testament law, uh, had a 100% accuracy rate. If not, they were killed. And that's because God is 100% accurate. So true prophets that were at that time in the Old Testament speaking on behalf of, of Yahweh, of God, speaking as his representatives, uh, they always got it right. They were simply the uh, conduit for God's information. Uh, but that's the way we use the term today. In fact, sometimes we'll say when someone makes a prediction, not necessarily claiming to be a prophet, but just sort of taking a stab at making a prediction, uh, you know, I predict, uh, you know, the Rams are going to win the Super Bowl, right? And the Rams won the Super Bowl. So someone might say, oh, you're a prophet, or what are you, a prophet? Well, they're just meaning that you predicted something and it came true. Uh, and, and so this, this type of prophetic fulfillment, called complete fulfillment, is uh, easy for us to get our hands around, and it's what we're most familiar with. Uh, all of a prophecy is fulfilled in one event. Now, I want to talk for a moment about the Messianic Psalms. Uh, I want to just look at a couple of Davidic uh, Psalms because they pose uh, some interesting interpretive difficulties uh, because obviously in the case of Davidic Psalms, Messianic Psalms, uh, there are Messianic Psalms in the, in the Bible, which just means they are Psalms that are uh, speaking of the future uh, coronation of, of, of Christ, the Messiah the coming of Messiah. Some of those are written by David. Uh, one of them is written by Solomon, for example, Psalm 72. Uh, there's other, there are others. But uh, I'm speaking just for the case, sake of example uh, now of just the Davidic ones. And let's, let's think of Psalm 2 and Psalm uh, 22 as well. So if you look at Psalm 2, a very well-known Messianic psalm, uh, David uh, says things like, uh, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, wow, this is a pretty uh, power-packed psalm as well and passage as well. A lot of theology here. I love Psalm 2. It's uh, noted because it's uh, a direct reference to the Luciferian conspiracy that I talk a lot about and that I've studied and uh, preached and, and taught about and written about. Uh, by the way, our latest book, uh, The Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 1, which, man, I cannot wait for you to read that. It's almost out. We should have um, the proof copy from the publisher uh, by mid-March, uh, and then I hope to have them available uh, for sale by April 1st. That's the target, hopefully sooner. But uh, you'll be, if you, if you subscribe to our newsletter or, or go to our website from time to time, you'll hear, certainly hear about it. And we'll be promoting it on radio shows and things like that. But 
in that book, I make frequent reference to Psalm 2 because that is a psalm that directly uh, talks about this, uh, you know, this Luciferian conspiracy. Now, it's written by David, and uh, David begins, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves together, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, that's Christ, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So right there, the first three verses, David, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is writing about this Luciferian conspiracy involving Satan, his demons, and, and govern, uh, governmental and ruler, uh, earthly rulers who are trying to take over the world and destroy God. Um, but David goes on to say, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall hold them in derision, <clears throat> and then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in deep displeasure. And he's going to say, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Now, this is fascinating because we know by comparing Scripture to Scripture that Christ indeed is not on the Davidic throne, the, the temple throne in Jerusalem. We know that that's yet future. Uh, Ezekiel talks about the, that temple that is to come. We know that first... In God's wrath, as David alludes to here, God's going to uh, destroy the Antichrist and uh, uh, come back and take over the world in perfect peace and justice and righteousness through His eternal Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, but speaking prophetically here, it's as good as done. That in the eternal timelessness of God, it's who lives in the eternal now, the future reign of Christ is a done deal. That's why I sometimes have to check myself when I am, am engaging in debates and dialogues with others who don't believe in a literal future reign of Christ. And I have to think, I don't need to prove anything to them because he's, in a manner of speaking, already reigning. Now, he's not reigning literally. He's not, there is no such thing as a metaphorical, spiritualized kingdom where he's reigning in our hearts. We talked about that uh, recently. I think it was Sunday morning at 9 o'clock hour. Um, but in terms of God's... Uh, you know, immutable nature and his covenant promise, uh, Christ will reign. And so David speaks of that, and, and it causes God to laugh when he thinks about the conspiracy of Satan and these earthly leaders who think they can throw off God's rulership. Uh, but then David goes on to say, I will declare the decree uh, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, David is referencing, again, writing under the Holy Spirit, and I believe writing purely prophetically. It's a messianic psalm. I'll say more about that in a moment. But he's talking about the Lord's decree going all the way back to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel seven fourteen. Now, we talked about that uh, Sunday. I really encourage you to go back and watch uh, the latest What Lies Ahead presentation, the video from Sunday, because we talked about the importance of that Davidic covenant as part of the broader Abrahamic covenant. Uh, but there the Lord describes uh, the relationship that he has with David and the kings that would succeed him, uh, Solomon first of all, and then ultimately the eternal king, Jesus Christ, who would reign forever and ever. Once Christ takes the throne of his kingdom and of his throne, there will be no end. And so God was communicating to David you know, his legitimate right to rule over Israel. Uh, in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, a, uh, 
a son usually succeeded the father in the kingly line. And so, indeed, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is also the son of David. His lineage traces back to David. And so he is the rightful heir to that decree that God made in 2 Samuel 7 to David that there would be a, a king on his throne uh, forever. And so uh, from the giving of the Davidic covenant onward, which would have been a thousand years in general terms before Christ, from the giving of the Davidic covenant on, the term son always referred, you know, to a, had a messianic sense. It referred to the messianic title of Christ. Um, and so it's in this sense that Jesus, you know, would speak of himself as the son of God. And when David goes on here and says, today I have begotten you, boy, that's been the fodder for a lot of really bad uh, theology. I, I think I mentioned uh, Sunday uh, that I had a call from a... Um, uh, you know, a, a critic uh, who called me unsolicited and wanted to explain to me why Jesus is not God and why the Trinity isn't true and the Bible doesn't teach the Trinity. And he referred to this passage and said, how can Jesus be the eternal Son of God if God says, you know, he begot him? Well, he just has no idea what David is talking about. He's using a metaphor. I mean, we've talked a lot about metaphors recently in the midweek uh, Bible study. But uh, God begot Jesus in a metaphoric sense, not by creating him, but by setting him on the throne. In that sense, he became the fulfillment of the Davidic promise. He became the, the kingly son of David who would rule forever and ever and ever. Um, so the today is not the day of Christ's birth. This isn't a, a first advent prophecy. We already looked at one of those in Micah 5. that talks about Bethlehem or Isaiah 7 talks about the virgin birth. This is a second advent prophecy, and the day in question here is the day Christ takes the long-awaited throne, the day of his coronation. In fact, a lot of these Messianic Psalms are called coronation psalms. Um, and so, um, you know, that's what he means. He's using a, a metaphor, not a, talking about Christ's physical birth. It has no connection whatsoever. So, I believe that Psalm 2 is a, an example of complete fulfillment. I don't believe David was talking about himself. Uh, you know, I think he's talking about speaking mess in a messianic voice about his lineage and the fulfillment of the promise that God made him. So it, it, there's a connection to David himself, but there's no connection in which David is going to be a king whom God sets on his holy hill of Zion and to whom God says, you're my son. Um, so, as you notice there on the screen, for those of you that are watching the video, um, king is capitalized, uh, son is capitalized, you, referring back to the son, that pronoun you is capitalized, because it's talking not about David, but about Jesus Christ. So, I believe this is one more example of a complete fulfillment where a prophecy is made, and it's fulfilled in one event. But Psalm 22 is an even uh, more interesting example because it's a much longer psalm. Uh, I think most people are familiar with Psalm 22. We often refer to it uh, around Easter. Um, but it begins in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if that sounds uh, familiar, it's because Jesus quotes those very words from the cross. In fact, there are many parts of this 
lengthy uh, Davidic psalm that are, uh, you know, connected to the, the crucifixion uh, event. In verse 8, for example, um, the mockers are saying, He trusted in the Lord, let Him rescue Him. Well, that's exactly what the people crucifying Christ said. You know, He saved others, let Him save Himself. Remember that? Uh, or in Psalm twenty-two, sixteen, 16, we read, Dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Uh, and again, that's a clear reference to the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Or verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So, so much of the description uh, that we see in Psalm 22 of the future Messiah comes to bear at the cross. So uh, the reason that I uh, bring this up as a, an example of complete fulfillment is because uh, there are scholars out there, Bible teachers out there, who try to espouse what they often call dual for fulfillment or double fulfillment, dual fulfillment. Um, and they would say that this is an example of one of those prophecies uh, because they say all of these things really happened to David. You know, David's hands and feet were really pierced. They really cast lots for his clothing. And he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then it happened again to Jesus. And so this prophecy has two fulfillments. But as we're going to see, I don't believe there is such a category. Uh, if a prophecy can have more than one fulfillment, then it can have an infinite number of fulfillments because who's to say when it's done? And uh, you can just keep drawing from the same well, going back to the same prophecy. Oh, it was fulfilled again and again and again. It's like a perpetual groundhog day, you know. And so I don't hold that category, as we will see when we get to the other two kinds of prophetic fulfillment here. Um, I think it's a complete fulfillment. Uh, now, when we get to the third type of prophetic fulfillment, you know, at least theoretically, that could be the way you handle Psalm 22 uh, in that, you know, Christ is simply uh, uh, quoting them as an analogy or something. But um, I'm going to give you some examples of that, and I think you'll see there's a stark difference. Christ isn't just referring in passing to something that happened to David. He is, you know, throughout the, the Psalm, 22nd Psalm, we see repeated details that can only apply to Christ. So, so I see this as complete fulfillment. I take all of the Messianic uh, Psalms uh, that way, and uh, this is the easiest one to kind of understand. So that's the first kind. And now let's move on to the second kind. Uh, I think you'll find this fairly easy to understand as well. So we've got complete fulfillment. All of the prophecy is fulfilled in one event, but there's also something called partial fulfillment, where you've got one prophecy, but it's fulfilled over time in stages, you might say. And so this isn't double fulfillment. It's just part of the prophecy is fulfilled, and then the rest of it isn't fulfilled yet. It awaits future fulfillment. And we see some examples of that, such as Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy, the 490-year plan of Daniel. We've talked a lot about this in my uh, prophecy teaching. It's a key uh, to understanding God's end times plan. Um, uh, Dr. John Walbert, one of my mentors, used to say Daniel is the key to prophetic revelation. Uh, and indeed it is. And so here's one prophecy, and it's a 490-year plan that God unveils to Daniel. 
and he specifically spells out when it's going to begin and when it's going to end. But he also says that it's going to happen in segments. And the first 483 years, the first 69 weeks, remember the word week is the Hebrew word Shabuah. It just means a seven-year period. Context determines meaning. There are a couple places where it could mean seven days, especially in the Levitical laws. But uh, in most places, the context is clear that it's years, um, uh, Shabuah. Uh, Daniel here is talking about years. He had talked about uh, Jeremiah's 70-year prophecy, which was coming to a close. And he prays and he asks God what happens next for the people of Israel. And God says, well, I'll tell you, in the next phase, it's not going to be 70 years, but it's going to be 70 times 7 years, 490 years. And so Daniel tells us quite plainly that the prophecy will begin with a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. We know that occurred uh, from Artaxerxes in uh, March 5th, 444 B.C., according to the book of Nehemiah. And then he says, from that point on, there'll be 483 years, and it will conclude with the coming of Messiah. Well, Christ's uh, triumphal entry occurred precisely to the day 483 years later, just as Daniel's prophecy predicted it. So the first 483 years have already been fulfilled. But there's still more to the prophecy. There's still more to come. Again, it's not a double fulfillment. It's just a fulfillment in stages. So we call this partial fulfillment. Now, in the case of this prophecy of Daniel, the final seven years have not been fulfilled yet. The text itself demands that there's a gap of time after the 69th week and prior to the start of the 70th week. We are living in that gap today. The New Testament uh, later on would... Uh, unveil additional things that will happen during this gap of time. Um, we don't get the gap of time from the New Testament. That's already there based on the way Daniel's prophecy is worded. But the New Testament comes and gives us more information about that gap. See, Daniel never tells us how long it's going to be before the 69th week, between the 69th week and the 70th week. He doesn't tell us how long it's going to be from the end of the 483rd year before the 484th year starts. He just says there's going to be a delay, a gap. And we learn from the New Testament that that uh, gap is called the church age. It's what uh, theologians call an intercalation, a, 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 a gap. Uh, and so, but notice, as you can see, kind of reflected on the screen there by my diagram, everything in blue is part of the one prophecy, but it's fulfilled in stages. Most of it's already been fulfilled, but seven years awaits future fulfillment. So that's an example of partial fulfillment. Uh, another example, and I, I love this example, we've probably looked at it before, but it's the great prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 61. Um, and this has always been a special verse to me because when I was uh, 14 or 15 years old at a summer camp and really felt like the Lord was getting a hold of me and and really calling me out to be to be involved in some kind of vocational ministry for my life, just as a young man. Um, this is the verse that kept uh, coming back to me, uh, and I think the Lord used it to just, you know, help lead me along in that way. Uh, but in reality, it's Jesus Christ's calling, as Isaiah predicted, and Jesus at the beginning of his ministry quotes this very passage in the beginning of his Galilean ministry in Luke chapter four, if you remember. Jesus walks into the synagogue. This is, you know, right after the baptism with John the Baptist. He's beginning his ministry. 
And Luke tells us he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book, uh, it was a scroll, he found the place where it was written and he turned to Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, what we call Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Back then they didn't have chapters and verse divisions. And again, it wasn't a book the way we think of a book. It was a scroll. So Luke is describing accurately what happened. Jesus unrolled the scroll and he finds the place where it was written and then he begins to read it. He says, and he's quoting again from Isaiah 61, and notice what he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then Luke tells us, he closed the scroll and said, Today this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. So clearly he's saying that that part of it was fulfilled. Um, and of course, the Jews knew or should have known that this was a messianic prophecy referring to the you know, coming one. And uh, Jesus is claiming that he's the one. And, uh, but what's interesting is if you go back to the Old Testament in Isaiah 61, the passage Jesus was quoting, uh, and by the way, anytime the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, take the time to go back and look it up. It will help you keep things in perspective and understand the context and, and, and often keep you from arriving at improper interpretations of the New Testament. So, uh, but if you look at the passage in Isaiah, the part that I've got highlighted on the screen at the very end there, Jesus didn't quote that. Jesus ended his quotation mid-sentence from Isaiah's prophecy with to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. But the prophecy continues, and it goes on, according to Isaiah, to say, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and so on. Well, that day of vengeance of our God didn't happen at the first advent. It will happen at the second advent, when Christ comes back to tread the winepress and fury of the wrath of Almighty God, with a sharp, sharp sword proceeding out of His mouth. He's coming to strike the nations, to judge. It's, it's a, the battle of Armageddon. The first advent of Christ, he came as a gentle lamb uh, who takes away the sins of the world, as John told us. And, uh, and of course, he was sacrificed. So Isaiah is speaking of the first and second advents of Christ as one prophecy, but only part of it's been fulfilled. So again, this isn't dual fulfillment. Like Daniel's prophecy, it's one prophecy, but it's fulfilled in stages. So I wish we were meeting in person because I would stop now and, and take some questions or comments because you guys always really help, I think, clarify what maybe I'm saying if it's not as clear as it, it should be. But uh, we'll come back to it next week again, Lord willing, if we're able to meet in person and do some review of this, of what we've been talking about tonight. So we've got complete fulfillment partial fulfillment, but then there's a third category, which I call analogical fulfillment. Now, sometimes in the literature, you'll hear people refer to this as typological fulfillment, meaning referring to typology, but I take the view of typology in Scripture that unless it is explicitly designated a type, and that is a biblical word in Greek, tupos, it, you know, there, you know, the New Testament will say such and such was a type of Christ. Uh, but unless it does that, I, I don't like to use the word typology. 
because otherwise you end up seeing typologies behind every bush. Uh, so I prefer uh, to refer to this type of fulfillment as an analogical fulfillment. And frankly, it's primarily unique to Matthew. Matthew's gospel uh, has some fascinating features. Matthew, of course, wrote to a Jewish audience to convince them that this Jesus whom they crucified was, in fact, the Messiah. Matthew was also the earliest gospel writer. Now, a lot of liberal critics and even some that aren't liberal, but they've been influenced by the rise of higher criticism over the last hundred years, will insist that Matthew was not the first gospel. You know, they'll say it was Mark. Um, in theological circles, that's the difference between Matthewan priority and Markan priority. Um, but I firmly believe that Matthew, the best evidence is that Matthew wrote first, just like all for 1800 years of church history, that's what the church knew and believed. It was not until the turn of the 20th century that we began to be suggesting that uh, the gospel writers all pieced stuff together from uh, outside resources and Matthew came along later. Uh, that's not true. So if you've got a, a study Bible or a commentary or some Bible study resources that are suggesting Matthew was, was not the first gospel, uh, I want to caution you against that. He, he was the first writer. He wrote roughly 44 uh, to 47 A.D., sometime in that time frame. The church had only been around about 10 to 15 years. And uh, it's a very fascinating gospel because he really lays out the Messianic hope. He's speaking to a predominantly Jewish audience. You know, Luke comes along. He's speaking to a predominantly Gentile audience. Mark is speaking to a predominantly Roman audience. John, of course, is not a synoptic gospel. It's the gospel of belief, and he's just speaking about Jesus, the giver of life. Um, but Matthew uses several uh, Old Testament prophecies, and he'll frequently say you know, something like, this happened that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet, and then he quotes the prophecy. These are called uh, fulfillment formulas. Uh, again, uh, very... Uh, uh, particular to Matthew. Uh, he uses them more than anybody in this sense. And uh, so I want to look at a few of those because these uh, pose some interpretive challenges uh, if all we had were complete fulfillment or partial fulfillment as an option. Because as we're going to see, the way Matthew is quoting a prophecy and claiming it's fulfilled uh, it doesn't really seem to make sense. So for example, uh, in uh, Matthew 2, when uh, Joseph and Mary take the Christ child uh, and flee to Egypt to uh, avoid uh, Herod's uh, decree of killing all the infants, uh, Matthew says, uh, This happened that it might be fulfilled, which was that which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. And if all we had was Matthew's record, we would think, oh, there must be an Old Testament prophecy that says the Christ child is going to flee to Egypt for safety, and then he's going to come back, having gone to Egypt as his safe haven while Herod was killing all the babies. The problem is that quote comes from Hosea 11.1, 1, and it's the exact opposite. Hosea is referring to the nation of Israel, who as a child, in other words, at their beginning, uh, was called out of captivity in Egypt, where they were being held as slaves, and freed from Egypt by Moses, 
Uh, and uh, so Hosea is referring back to that positive event when Egypt, when Israel was called out of Egypt. So how do you explain that? I mean, was Matthew confused? What, what's he, he doing? Uh, well, let's look at another one before I answer that question. Uh, you see later on in Matthew 2, uh, Matthew is uh, quoting from Jeremiah here. We'll look at the Jeremiah passage in a second. But he says, um, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, talking about all the infants that were killed by uh, Herod, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Uh, by the way, Matthew is the only New Testament writer that quotes Jeremiah. We see references to the New Covenant, which, of course, Jeremiah talks about, but no direct quotes other than uh, by Matthew. Well, if you go back to the passage in Jeremiah, uh, the context is the Babylonian captivity, and poetically, Jeremiah is presenting Rachel as a metonym for Israel, and, you know, the, the sort of the, the uh, poetic mother of the Jews mourning from her grave because her children were being carried off into captivity. So there was great weeping in the land because Israel, you know, the temple was, uh, was being destroyed and, and Israel was being carted off to Babylon. And so, so again, in what sense does the, do the events of Herod in the first century fulfill Jeremiah's prediction in Jeremiah 31? Well, th this is something unique to Matthew, and Matthew, this is, gets into uh, understanding the type of literature, in this case, gospel literature. Now, next week, I'm going to take some time and, and talk about genre and look at the different types of genre. We're going to look at some examples in Scripture and explain to you why that's important. And this will be a good uh, thing to remember as an example of why it's important to understand genre. But gospel narratives, even though it's historical narrative, and obviously like all of Scripture, it's 100% accurate, it's not narrative literature in the same sense that, say, the book of Acts in the New Testament uh, is, or the, uh, you know, the, uh, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings in the Old Testament are. Gospel literature uh, is where gospel writers under the inspiration of the Spirit take selected events from the life and ministry of Christ, and they put them together in a particular order to make a theological point. And Matthew, as we said, was writing to a Jewish audience, and he's wanting to prove that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And, of course, by the time Matthew's writing, they've already crucified him, the church has already been born, and he's just, you know, he's writing this to, to demonstrate that everything that has taken place fulfills what the Old Testament said. And so Matthew is using these prophecies as an analogy. That's why we call this analogical fulfillment, meaning it's an analogy. And Matthew is specifically bringing up these prophecies to make a point. So when he says that it was fulfilled, it's the Greek word plerao, he doesn't mean fulfilled in the one-for-one -one sense, like complete fulfillment or partial fulfillment would be, it's a particular formula, we call it a fulfillment formula, in which he's appealing to a prophecy to make a point. And I think the best way to demonstrate that is to kind of walk through some examples. Now, this is uh, something that I got years ago from uh, a former Dallas Seminary professor, Charlie Dyer. I never had him. He was gone by the time I got there. But uh, fascinating stuff. It's from an article in a 
book. I, it's, I can't remember the book. It wasn't his book. It was an article that was a compendium of articles as a, uh, a festrift for some, uh, in honor of some other speaker. You know, people will write a, a book of essays which multiple contributors to honor somebody. Uh, and it was in one of those. I can't remember the name of it, but really, I, I really caught my attention. I think it's the best way to really explain what's going on in Matthew's gospel. So if you look at uh, the nation of Israel, basically Matthew is trying to show that Jesus is the ultimate seed of Abraham, the ultimate son of David, the Messiah whom the Jews crucified, and that he will someday come back and take the throne. And so right from the beginning, you're going to see some parallels between the life of Christ and the nation of Israel. So in the case of Israel, Israel was called uh, out of Egypt as a child in their infancy, in the beginnings of their nation. Similarly, Christ was called out of, out of Egypt as a child. And the significance of this, that the Jews reading Matthew's gospel uh, years later would have seen, is that whereas Israel was disobedient after leaving Egypt, Christ was obedient. So again, he's contrasting Christ as the ultimate seed of Israel and King of Kings and Messiah with Israel and showing Israel's disobedience the way the first century Israel also rejected Christ and was disobedient. Then if you read on in Israel's history, of course, Israel comes out of Egypt, they uh, cross over the Red Sea and they are baptized, as it were, uh, in the Red Sea. Uh, well, in the story of Christ, in Matthew's account, you get to Matthew chapter 3, and what do we find? Christ himself is baptized by John the Baptist. So it's paralleling the experience of Israel. Uh, once again, Israel was disobedient after crossing the Red Sea just three days later, but yet Christ was the ultimate sinless example, and he receives the commendation from God, my, you are my beloved son uh, with whom I am well pleased. Then you move on to the next phase of Israel's history. Israel ends up wandering in the wilderness and is tempted for 40 years. Um, what happens next in Matthew's account? You get to chapter 4, and Christ is wandering in the wilderness and tempted for 40 days. So there's a parallel there. But once again, you see a contrast. Israel failed her temptations time and again, which is why the Exodus generation didn't get to go into the promised land including Moses, because of unbelief and lack of faith. Christ, of course, was just the opposite. He passed every temptation at every turn. Uh, and then, you know, another one is next we see Israel uh, going to Mount Sinai where they receive God's law. What's the next thing Matthew records in his selected events and, and organization of the events of Christ? Well, he records the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7 where Christ goes up on a mountain to explain the law not to receive the law. And what do we see? Well, Israel, you know, broke the law time and again. In fact, you might say literally, <laughs> Moses broke the tablets, but Christ fulfilled the law. Uh, fulfilled the law. Again, there's that word plerao. So in the same, so what I think Matthew's trying to show here is that when he says such and such happened that it might be fulfilled, plerao, uh, what was spoken to the prophet, is not that this is a direct fulfillment, that the prophets predict something and then it happens, because clearly that's not the case, the way Matthew's referring to them. He's making an analogy, and he's saying that Christ fulfilled the law, and he is everything that you, Israel, have not been, and you better come to him and believe in him.
So uh, hopefully that helps clarify a little bit about some of these uh, passages in Matthew. There are more, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, cr the one crying in the wilderness is a reference to John the Baptist. We could we could look at more, but I think you get the idea. So the bottom line is, and we'll close out for tonight. There are three options when you come to a prophecy. Is it speaking of a direct prediction that will happen or has already happened all at once? Is it speaking of one prophecy that might be fulfilled over time in different stages, but it's still just one prophecy? Or is it an example in the New Testament where a New Testament writer is referring to something in, a, in an analogous way to make a point? And, and that's sometimes, uh, sometimes what we see. Now, let me hasten to add, we don't, as you know, human readers of Scripture who are not inspired by the Holy Spirit like the human authors were, we don't have the right to analogize, analogize, I should say, uh, these Old Testament passages and turn them into some symbolic meaning. Um, the late, uh, oh, what was his name, Robert Thomas, uh, who I had the chance to work with, a brilliant mind, wrote uh, the best commentary in the book of Revelation ever. It's about that thick. Uh, he also has written some great stuff on hermeneutics, how to study the Bible. Uh, but uh, he, uh, in one of his, uh, it was either an article or a book uh, that he wrote, talks about this very issue, and he refers to what Matthew was doing and what other New Testament writers do as inspired census plenior, or ISP. Now, you have to understand what the Latin census plenior means. That, that was coming out of the Reformation, the, and even before that, the method of Bible interpretation that uh, non-literalists use, that people back, you know, like today, covenant theologians and others use, where they were looking to find the fullest sense. That's what census plenier means, the fullest sense or the deepest sense. They were looking to find in the pages of Scripture what the words really mean, you know, the goosebump, you know, perspective, as I call it. And so the more wild and fanciful the interpretation, the more fuller, the sense, the, the more full the sense was. So it's called census plenior. Um, and uh, that is not the proper way to interpret Scripture, as we've been talking about in this series, uh, because it puts the meaning of the words in the mind of the reader, not the author. But what Robert Thomas was pointing out was that when a writer is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, could carry him along to do that very thing, inspired census plenier, to take passages out of context from the Old Testament and give them a secondary analogous meaning. But the fact that they did that doesn't validate that that's a proper method of Bible study today. Uh, so, so that third one's a little more complex. We'll come back to it, you know, next week. But I just wanted to make sure and mention it because you know, obviously there are these passages in Matthew that don't fit either of the first two categories. But uh, when you come to a prophecy, either it's complete fulfillment, it's partial fulfillment, or it's analogical fulfillment. So uh, thanks for uh, tuning in uh, tonight. I hope uh, the live stream came across okay. Uh, the video will be posted here in a little bit, and uh, you can spread that around. And uh, hope you guys uh, stay warm and safe, and we will see you on uh, Sunday morning, Lord willing. Thanks, and God bless.